0: I became interested within that in the study of clothing during the period of slavery in Mm -hmm. Peru. And so that was what my Fulbright research was. What kinds of clothing mattered to them, especially as enslaved people who didn't get to make choices about what they wore. Mm -hmm. Um, I found lots of different cases, but one, for example, involved an enslaved man who stole women's clothing that he then gave to his sister, and to his nieces, mm. so they could wear their clothes, their new clothes, like silks and mm. laces and things like that, to a bullfight, where they could go somewhere in public and dress up and yeah, and show be out. comfortable and <laughs> yeah, and show out exactly, <laughs> and that that mattered to him, right, as a, a brother and an uncle. I think those are things that even for modern folks who you know, have experienced those things themselves, like just being gifted clothing from someone who loves them, Mm -hmm. um, that we can imagine how that feels, right?
1: Hello, hello! Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Tamra as the guest and I'm also excited because, oh am I excited? Who knows? <laughs> my point is, um, it's 2022 now so Happy New Year to you all. I hope that your 2022 has gotten off to, if not a grand start, then at least a very peaceful one. I feel so weird saying 2020, 2021, 2022, it just doesn't feel real. It feels like I'm living in the future or something, you know. <laughs> um, but yes, we are here in 2022. I am back from my customary November to January break, and I'm looking forward to putting out new episodes, featuring new guests for you all this year, and also heading toward a pretty significant milestone in the first half of this year, but I will speak on that in episodes to come. For now, and before I tell you about Tamra, I do have three quick announcements to make from 2021 that I am just now getting to <laughs> share with you all now. So first of all, um, this one I actually forgot to say before I figuratively closed up shop, but in September of 2021, Christine Job, who was the guest on episode 73 of Young Gifted and Abroad, she posted a list on her blog for Flourish in the Foreign, um, which is her podcast. She published a list of the top podcasts of 2021 produced by and for Black women living and thriving abroad, and she included Young Gifted and Abroad in that list Um, that was very kind of her. Was not expecting that. So thank you Christine for including me. (laughs) And then in November well actually back in August I recorded this really stellar conversation with El Sharice of Speaking Tongues podcast. That is a podcast about bilingual and multilingual people and El Sharice interviews all these various people about the languages they speak, why they speak them and how they learn them and how they use them on the day-to-day. So again, she interviewed me back in August, and that episode, which is titled 79, Episode 79, Speaking French and Japanese, um, that came out in November. So y'all can go check that out. And thanks to El Sharice, she's such good people. Y'all make sure you listen to speaking tongues, okay? And then last but not least, in December of 2021, so last month, (laughs) I was featured in an episode of White People Won't Save You, which is a podcast run by uh, these really funny and insightful dudes named Cameron and Jordan. They run White People Won't Save You and talk about white savior tropes in film So they had me on to talk about The Road to El Dorado. Um, Some of you might remember that animated film from, I think it was the year 2000. Anyway, that was my pick. And um, you can hear in the episode how I kind of regretted picking that movie. (laughs) But we had a hilarious time kind of uh, picking it apart. But you know sometimes things deserve to be picked apart i don't know what to tell you but uh yes so that episode is titled el dorado featuring danielle g recorded that in november and it came out in december and i had a ball i had a fantastic time so thanks to jordan and cameron for having me on white people won't save you and y'all make sure you listen to that show too it's really good stuff so okay so there go my announcements, and now I can finally tell y'all about Tamra. Tamra is a name that you might remember me mentioning a couple times in 2021, because I was a guest on the podcast "Why We Wander," which is a show that she co-hosts with her friend and business partner Shannon. Um, together, they also they co-founded and they run a nonprofit called The Wandering Scholar, which um, helps fund international travel opportunities for, I guess you could say, marginalized high schoolers, people who might not otherwise have the chance to go on such trips at that age. And the podcast, Why We Wander, is a travel podcast that is an extension of, of the nonprofit. So they invited me on and they interviewed me in May. And That conversation came out, that episode came out in June of 2021. (laughs) And I had a lovely time and uh, basically it had been mentioned that Tamara also had study abroad experience and she'd be interested in being a guest on the show. And I didn't take her up on it until basically the end of the year. (laughs) And, um, you know, I figured as I was preparing to go on break, I was like, hmm, let me record one more interview and and have the first interview of 2022 recorded in advance and and ready to go uh, once the new year starts. So, you know, here we are, it worked out. (laughs) So aside from being a nonprofit co-founder and a podcaster, Tamara is also a historian. She's a professor originally from Colorado, uh, but she lives and teaches in Canada. And she's specifically an expert on Latin American history. And that interest of hers, which developed into expertise, started with a high school trip that she took to Mexico. Um, While in high school, she also took a trip to France as well. But it was the trip to Mexico that really ignited her desire to go to even more Spanish-speaking countries and to um, pursue further study in the Spanish language and then that um developed into an interest in history as well and so after those school trips she went on to mexico and to france Um, in college she spent a semester in argentina doing independent research on racism and xenophobia but specifically how those issues were talked about in classrooms um, in buenos aires which is the capital of Argentina and so we talked about the interesting and and some of the disheartening findings that she had in the process of working on that research project Um, but that experience really instilled in her a love of research and a desire to um, further pursue academia so after undergrad she went on to pursue her PhD and was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship that she used to do her PhD dissertation research in Peru. She was in Peru for a year and similarly to her time in Argentina she was looking at a racial aspect of history again but this time she was specifically focused on the clothing and the meanings associated with the clothing that black women were wearing in peru during slavery times and the work that she did for her dissertation while on her fulbright in peru later became the basis of a book that she wrote expanding on that topic Um, so this episode is a really great one if you are interested in history and are also interested in the history of black people in latin america especially in places or in certain time periods that people might perceive that they didn't exist, even though they really did. Um, Yeah, really great history discussion, uh, really great discussion of Tamara's approach to research and also the role that empathy plays in her ability to do research well. And then, of course, we also talked about how she met Shannon, how the Wandering Scholar came to be, and also um, why they decided to include why we wander as an addition to um the work that they do with the wandering scholar so um i've been talking a lot already (laughs) i mean it was necessary i had some things to to fill y'all in on so um but (laughs) i really hope you learned something new from this conversation i know i did and i just hope you enjoy it and have a good time listening that's that's why we're here right so without further ado sit back relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Dr. Tamra Walker.
0: I've been doing well. I've actually done some travel since we last spoke. I don't think I'd managed to do any travel up until that point. And then I remember the day that I interviewed you for my podcast or the day my partner and I interviewed you for our podcast was the day I was getting in a car to drive cross country to Colorado oh, cool. and ended up staying there. The initial idea was to stay there for about three weeks, maybe a month. And we ended up staying over two months. So it ended up being a really great trip. And that was the bandaid that needed to be ripped off for other travel. Um, I haven't done a ton of travel, but it just was like the, the moment that allowed us to feel comfortable about traveling, having been fully vaccinated and all yeah. that.
1: Yeah, I gotcha. I actually, um, that's so funny. I think the day after y'all interviewed me, I also went on my own trip very much shorter than driving to Colorado but we mm. went to Cleveland mm. after my friend and I had both been fully vaccinated cuz there was a <laughs> bookstore there that she'd been raving about so we went there too <laughs> um to check it What's out What's the bookstore? It's called Loganberry. Um it's an independent store and yeah, it's really nice. It's cute. It's it's one of those bookstores that's been in an old building for a really long time and has all these nooks and crannies. I liked it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad you got to go to Colorado and feel comfortable doing that after not traveling for so long. How how long was that drive? I don't know where you were driving from.
0: We were driving from Toronto and if you went door to door, it would be about a 24-hour trip. But we had no interest in doing that. It had been a really long time since either me or my husband had driven a car. And we just wanted to take our time. And there was no rush anyhow. So we broke it into about four days and drove about between like four and eight hours a day, just kind of depending on the stretch of the trip that we were on. Mm. And we had our dog with us. That was the reason we drove. I mean, for lots of reasons. But the main reason we drove was because of our dog. And we found a bunch of pet friendly hotels. And So, you know, it wasn't the point of the trip. We weren't trying to take a road trip, but we kind of made it into more of a road trip. So mm-hmm. we were just, you know, taking our time and trying not to run ourselves ragged. But mm-hmm. it was a long it was a long trip.
1: Okay. You are you're not from Canada, right? You are you Canadian?
0: I don't No. <laughs> I don't <know>. No. <laughs> I'm from Colorado. So my oh. husband and I are both from Colorado and living in Toronto. And so we ended up just wanting to go back home and see our families because we hadn't done that since December of 2019. Okay. And so we felt like it was a good time to go. And we had actually only been um, able to get our first shot in Canada because the rollout was a lot slower in Canada than in the U.S. Oh. And by that point, it was end of May. And by that point, there had been a um, majority of people who wanted to get vaccinated in the U.S. were able to get the shots and they were just there was a, a glut of shots, so we were able to just get our shots in in Colorado, and we quarantined at a house that we had rented from a friend or a friend of a friend. Mm, and then okay. by by mid June, we were we were fully vaccinated, so it was great.
1: Nice, okay, cool, yeah. Because I I was looking at your your bios on um your website and the the Wandering Scholar's website, and so I saw you'd gone to school in the states, but I wasn't. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. Y'all are both from Colorado and live in Canada or yeah, are based in Canada. Did you, (laughs) this is not about your trip to Colorado, obviously, but I'm just curious, did you have any trouble getting back into Canada when you went, um, when you returned?
0: No, and actually part of the reason we ended up staying for so long was because we were kind of waiting for the entry requirements to get a little more relaxed since we're not Canadian citizens. And we actually don't have permanent residency. We just have working permits. Mm. And so we were in a category of people who might have had a harder time getting back into Canada. And so the longer we waited, the more things started to open up. And sure enough, by early August, they had made it so that everyone, um, every American citizen, including folks like us, um, were able to get back in as long as we had been fully vaccinated and taken a PCR test and had all of our ducks in a row in terms of paperwork. Mm. And so the timing, it was like the day after those rules had gone into effect that we were setting out for Canada. And so that was, yeah, that was the the challenge. It was super easy to get into the US. I mean, I don't think it's all that surprising (laughs) Um, just in terms of like how much more lax things were and that, you know, we're American citizens. We had passports and we had no trouble crossing the border. And it was a really quiet day at the border. I think it's been a quiet couple years at the border, Mm. or at least by that point, it had been the case. So there was no wait and not much in the way of questioning. I mean, that's something that was just our our fortune, right? And our privilege Mm. as Americans that that wasn't the challenge, but getting back into Canada was going to be the harder part. But ultimately, even that went smoothly, just because we had done all the work of of getting back across the border.
1: I see. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I don't know. I hadn't kept up, even though I live in Michigan, so there's like a, Mm -hmm. you know, we're right there next to Canada. I I don't always keep up on what the rules are, uh, especially currently with the pandemic and everything. So I'm glad Mm -hmm. y'all didn't have too much of a hard time getting back. So... Yeah, obviously, we're <laughs> here to talk about um, your your travels elsewhere besides uh, Canada and um, Colorado. I wanted to say before we got into it, um, thank you again to you and Shannon for having me on Why We Wander. Y'all made me feel uh, really comfortable and welcomed and a lot more interesting than I'm used to feeling.
0: So <laughs> 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 thanks for that. Uh, you made it easy to talk to so oh, well thank you, <laughs> all you.
1: Yeah. and um and thank you also for agreeing to be a guest on on this show on young gifted and abroad i'm really excited to dig into some of the places you've been and and your expertise on latin america so um why don't we start with you introducing yourself a bit
0: if you don't mind sure So, my name is Tamara Walker and I am American. We've covered some of this. (laughs) Um, And I currently live in Canada because I am a professor of Latin American history at the University of Toronto, where I've been since 2017. Mm. And so, it's weird to think of myself as an expat just because Canada is so close. And there's something conceptually to me that requires either going across an ocean or some body of water or to a region that has a different language I mean obviously Canada is also a French-speaking country mm-hmm. but it just doesn't feel far enough away in part because you know the border is so close for it to feel like I am an expat or that I live abroad but yeah for all intents and purposes that that is the case and yeah I became a Latin American historian because of study abroad so that was a big reason why I was so excited to, to talk to you and why I have been so passionate about the work that I do for the Wandering Scholar which is a nonprofit that I co-founded with my partner, Shannon Keating, in 2009. We had both been, you know, really profoundly shaped by our experiences studying abroad. And it turned out, even though she and I didn't know each other and grew up in different parts of the country, and I'm a few years older than her, we had both gone to private high schools that offered short-term trips abroad to Mexico Mm-hmm. Although I think hers was longer. I think she actually spent maybe a semester in Mexico, mm. whereas in, in my case, I spent a two week period as part of my school's interim program. It was a spring program that was focused on cultural immersion and language immersion. And so I spent time in Mexico and then all of that. And, you know, I'm happy to circle back to all of these things, but just the the quick bio aspect of it is that all of that made me want to study abroad for a longer period of time in another Spanish speaking country. And so I ended up studying abroad in Argentina in college. I had other reasons for picking Argentina, but that was, that was one of them. And it happened that Shannon also studied abroad in Argentina when she was in college. And so these are things that we figured out about each other when we met just through a mutual friend who knew that we would have a lot in common. Yeah. And it was out of that meeting that we both decided to found the wandering scholar to make sure that we could provide similar opportunities to kids who came from backgrounds that were similar to ours, Mm. recognizing that it was going to have a profound and life-altering and path-changing effect on those students as well. So Mm. that's very much been the case. We're in our 10th year of operation. Obviously, the pandemic has changed the nature of what we have been doing over the past couple of years. But in some ways, I think it has made us even more committed to our mission. It's made us improvise in ways that will serve the organization for years to come Mm -hmm. and to think about digital programming in ways that are going to serve our students and our program for years to come. And so for as much as it was a challenge for us to spend the past couple of years not doing the thing that really keeps us going, Mm -hmm. which is giving these students opportunities to travel for the first time or by themselves for the first time and to carry out the kind of projects that we, you know, help them to, to bring to fruition. We still feel so passionate and optimistic, honestly, about the work that that we're doing yeah. and that we'll continue to do, especially in, in the coming summer and in the years to come. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the short version of of who I am in terms of just where I come from and how that has shaped the kind of stuff that I do now, both as a professor and as a nonprofit founder mm. um oh and as you mentioned we have our own podcast we have a podcast called why we wander where we just talk about all things travel and mm-hmm. so it's an extension of the nonprofit, and it's just an opportunity to talk about different people who travel different organizations that are changing the travel landscape different world events such as the pandemic that are changing the way we think about and go about travel And again, that was something that has been really altered by the pandemic, but we ended up finding a lot of really rich topics to cover Mm -hmm. and we'll continue to cover, you know, really complicated things that have come up as a result of, of the pandemic. And as a result of just having to shift the way we do things and the way people around the world do things, which in turn affect the way we do things when we travel. Yeah. So we've been spending a lot of time just grappling with all of these things, but we can obviously pick up on some of them in our, in our conversation, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, that that's me.
1: Yes. Excellent. Um, yeah. So congrats on, you said 10 years uh, in operation? Yeah. 10 years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's a huge milestone. And, um, those parallels you mentioned between you and Shannon, that, that is so cool. It's almost like, y'all were meant to be in a way meant to be partners in this thing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I believe that a hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned how you started out with going to uh, Mexico and high school and, and France as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, what drew you to, uh, wanting to go on those trips and what did you do while you were there?
0: So, I was at this school in Colorado. It's called Colorado Academy. And it has this program called Interim that takes a lot of different shapes depending on the teachers that are running the program and, like, what's going on in the world and in the city. This is in Denver Mm -hmm. when they're running the program. So there were a lot of my classmates who went on – community service trips around town, around different parts of Denver. And then there were others who did theater workshops around town where they were already students who were interested in theater and performance. And so they were able to do more of that in this two week spring break period. Mm. And then there were trips that were organized by the language teachers to French and Spanish speaking countries, because at the time those were the two languages that were being offered. And I was taking Spanish. I had this teacher who was just so, inspiring and supportive and encouraging. And Mm -hmm. so I just loved Spanish class. And that was not a foregone conclusion because I had gone to another private school from seventh to ninth grade before going to Colorado Academy. And I enrolled from public school. And I remember being part of this kind of summer program before the start of seventh grade, Mm -hmm. where the teachers were kind of tasked with helping me and a couple of other public school transfer students get up to speed. That was kind of the way they framed it. Mm. And I remember that at the end of the summer, the teacher was kind of giving us a forecast of what was to come during the upcoming school year. And she said to us that the best, and I'm not misremembering this, but every time I remember it, it sounds impossible. But she said to us that the best thing that we could hope for in the upcoming school year in our language classes was a B minus or a C. What? And so she was basically telling us not to get our hopes up and not to expect too much of ourselves and basically of of them, right? Of them as educators and of the school more generally that they could only do so much to bring us up to speed because, and part of that was a fair enough point because a lot of my classmates had been taking language classes since they were in kindergarten and here we were coming in in the 7th grade having missed out on all of that kind of foundational learning mm. but it also was so discouraging but yeah. i'm someone who responds to discouragement in <laughs> in ways that make me even more driven mm. to to succeed and so i wanted to basically spite that teacher and so <laughs> <laughs> i I didn't want her to, to be right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was actually rooted in a lot of different things because all of us who were coming from public school were low income students of color. So there was a lot of classism Mm. and there was a lot of racism that was rooted in what she was saying. And so then I also felt pressure to represent in that moment too. Mm. And so I ended up, you know, doing really well in Spanish class. And that became kind of my subject, I had a couple other subjects, but that was one because I remember that was the class that she said we couldn't expect to do well in, mm. and so nonetheless, I still didn't feel kind of supported and encouraged. I didn't feel like I was good at it. I just felt like I was doing everything I needed to do, right? Yeah, to prove her wrong. But then I get to this other school, and I have this teacher, Miss Salisbury, who just was so in every in every way that mattered. She was the opposite of that other teacher, and she never assumed I would do anything but thrive. Mm. And so it made me want to to live up to her expectations of me. And so I just loved her class. I loved the language. I loved the way she taught our classes. It was really good preparation actually for college because all of her classes really felt like college seminars. Mm. She told lots of stories. She told lots of stories about Mexico. And so when the time came and the opportunity came to go on this trip to Mexico, I was like that is my trip. It was complicated by the fact that I was a scholarship student at the school and plainly couldn't afford the trip. My family couldn't afford the trip. Mm. And so that created another set of challenges in terms of figuring out how I was actually going to be able to afford this trip. And it took some doing, it took some conversations with the headmaster and with different folks at school to make sure that, you know, my scholarship could go towards this trip and not be this additional out-of-pocket expense. My mom still had to come up with some money, but it wasn't as prohibitively expensive as it initially had been. And so, you know, I still I still think about that, just that idea that, you know, a lot of these schools, these private schools will bring scholarship students in, mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily able to support them in every aspect of their experience there because there's still the expectation at private schools and at lots of schools, even public schools that you come out of pocket for a lot of things that to my mind mm. should be included in the education, right? right. If you're going to make it available to all students then it needs to be available to all students in a really meaningful way and the truest sense of, of that word. Right. So that's a whole other rabbit hole, but you can see even from what I'm saying, <laughs> why it's something like the wandering scholar is so meaningful to me because yes. it takes that economic question off the table, right? That we make sure that our students who participate in our program are going on fully funded international trips
2: mm-hmm. from
0: top to bottom in terms of their airfare, in terms of their travel expenses. Um, and that came out of those kinds of experiences. Yeah. So that's why I chose Mexico. Um, and that's why, I, you know, I, I, I chose the Wandering Scholar. Mm. But yeah, that that very first experience kind of came out of out of both of the schools that I, I went to. But the one where I felt most supported was the one that allowed that trip to actually come to fruition.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you didn't let that discouragement and that dismissiveness deter you. Um mm-hmm. Although, I don't know, I feel like a, a child at that age shouldn't have to, like... <laughs> find motivation and spite just to prove their no. teacher wrong, you know, like a exactly. teacher should be supportive.
0: <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But And um- I'm sure, you know, a lot of my classmates, because I remember, you know, there were, there were several of us in that room and I can't say the same for the rest of them, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of whether they, they thrived, you know, like we all had different paths yeah. out of that room. And so, yeah, it it shouldn't have relied on, our individual metal, right. Or individual right. psychological responses to, to that conversation to determine what direction we'd go in.
1: Yeah. And, and France, what, what made you want to go to France? Did you just want to go somewhere else after, after experiencing Mexico?
0: <laughs> Basically.
1: Okay. <laughs> um,
0: Cause I was at the same school. It was a combination of things. Like it was, you know, being at the same school and, having a really good, like one of my best friends to this day who had started out taking French classes and decided that she wanted to learn Spanish. And I remember, um, and this is like the value of having like good peers, right. And peers who are strong influences because Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, I want to do that. I can do that too. Like if, if you're going to switch from French to Spanish or add, you know, Spanish on top of French, then I'm going to add French on top of Spanish.
2: Mm.
0: And I knew that she was in the French class that whose teacher was planning the trip to Paris and to Lyon. And so I was like, I got to get in on that. Mm. And so and I don't even think I i think I had to do a lot of independent study, because the semester had already started. But I had my sights set on that trip. And so I had to do a lot of catch up in terms of
1: Oh, with the language to... Independent study, episode. yeah.
0: Because I, I wasn't formally enrolled, at least for the trip to France, in the French class. Mm-hmm. But I had to show that I did have proficiency in French. And so I needed to do a lot of catch-up work. And I had the foundation in Spanish. And I had mm-hmm. taken Latin at my other school. So I had a good grounding in, in order to kind of pick up enough. And, you know, at that age, it is a lot easier to pick those things up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had the I had the will to do a lot of things to do, you know, take on challenging experiences. And also, I just really wanted to go to Paris. And I wanted to go on this trip with my friend Anna. And it just seemed like a really cool opportunity. And so I was like, let's make this happen. And same thing. I had to figure out how to get the school to cover the cost of it. And, you know, put as little a burden on my mom as possible. My mom was a single parent working two jobs to support two kids. Mm. And I just, you know, I don't think I was as respectful of that situation, especially just being surrounded by all these super wealthy kids Mm -hmm. as I am now. And I wasn't as appreciative of, you know, how much she had to do to make that possible as I am now. But yeah, I, I I still had an understanding of that and that I needed to do my part. And I had, you know, after school jobs too, where I was trying to just squeeze some pennies together in order to make this happen. But Mm. Yeah. So it was because I was, you know, at the end of the day, it was because I was at a school that offered these possibilities and made it possible even for students with scholarships to participate in them. Because Mm -hmm. the other thing about the other school is that they offered a trip to Russia at the end of our ninth grade year. And if you couldn't afford it, you just couldn't afford it. It was not an option. Oh, and so dang. some <laughs> of that, right, some of it too was that, that resentment, right, where it's just like, okay, you can't <laughs> – I can't go on the Russia trip. Well, I'm going on every other trip I can possibly <laughs> get my hands on yeah. from here on out.
1: What you, what you said about your mom really resonated with me because I also was raised uh, by a single mom for the most part. You know, my, my parents got divorced when I was really young. And so I also was like – you know, a young student really interested in languages and and traveling the world and wasn't always, you know, sometimes we get frustrated when, like, I would hear about exchange programs or different trips like that, and, and my mom was just, like, couldn't do it, either because she was concerned about my safety or because of funds or whatever sort of, like, parenting agreement she had to abide by, you know, so mm-hmm. I feel you. It's hard to understand why your your parents are just like holding you back for no reason mm-hmm. or don't want don't mm-hmm. want you to experience these things but of course yeah. there's there are other pa- factors at play that you don't really understand or appreciate when you're in high school
0: you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so. no I, I totally had that feeling um <laughs> more than I I care to admit right where it's like why do you not want me to have this experience that all my friends are going to be able to have mm. and part of that came from honestly you know like I said being at this private school where I was surrounded by a lot of entitled privileged kids mm-hmm. and it made me entitled and I had access to privilege by virtue of being there even by yeah. virtue of being there on scholarship but in a lot of ways that sense of entitlement obviously probably made me kind of a nightmare as a teenager but it also has I think there's a good type of entitlement mm-hmm. that. You know, needs to be rooted in perspective and, and reality. But it was a sense of entitlement that made me feel entitled to success and entitled to opportunity and entitled to be able to show what I was made of and what I was capable of. And I think that that was very much a product of being in these environments. And I, I, I wish that for lots of people who Came from similar backgrounds as, as me because it, it really changed everything for me. Like that sense of what mm-hmm. was possible by virtue of seeing what was possible at these schools, right? Yeah. And what my, what my peers were, were experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes we think of a sense of entitlement as an inherently bad thing, but I also think, especially for low income students of color, having a sense of entitlement can really be powerful. Obviously, we have to, contain and control it and Mm -hmm. just be mindful of it so maybe it's like an intentional kind of entitlement but it's one that that really made made a big difference for me
1: no I, i feel you you know feeling uh that you're just as deserving as others and that you should be able to have access to things that your peers have and that you're not any lesser than anyone around you just because of your situation yeah i can see what you mean in terms of a positive Form of entitlement. Yeah. You know how you feel about yourself, especially at that age. It's so p- pivotal, the ideas that you form about yourself at that age. So mm-hmm. when you went to Mexico and, and to France, you said in France, was it just to Paris or was Paris and Lyon as well? Is that what you said?
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, and then Mexico, where were you in Mexico?
0: We were in Mexico City and then we were in Cuernavaca. And so the, the way it was, we were only very briefly in Mexico city, but most of our time was spent in Cuernavaca and we did language classes and we stayed with a host family. And then we spent a week. Um, and I have mixed feelings about this upon reflection, but we spent a week (laughs) at an orphanage with fellow teenagers. Um, and we stayed in the dorms with them and like cooked and ate meals with them. I remember we, um, had to pluck chickens that we were all eating for dinner. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> the idea was to really immerse ourselves in the the world of this orphanage and to bond with the, the teenagers who lived there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a lot of critiques of volunteerism and when I look back on it, that's exactly what that was. Hmm. And I think about what that meant for the, the children living in the orphanage and how often they were having to host groups just like ours and form attachments to kids just like us that were so short-lived right and that were for our kind of education and edification and it doesn't it doesn't strike me as the the best idea mm. for for anyone involved and especially the children who live in the orphanage
2: yeah
0: um but that that's what we did and then the french one it's also interesting too because it was very much determined by the location and it kind of speaks to how we arrange travel to certain parts of the world mm. compared to others because that was very much a this is how you engage the developing world right you you go to provide services whereas for the trip to France we did a week in Paris where we were just straight up tourists we were being led around by our french teacher and then we did a week in lyon where we were staying with those families and going to a local high school and just like hanging out with the French kids, there was no conception of any kind of service being performed. Mm-hmm. And so they were very different trips in terms of their, their structure. And they just made for very different ways of, of thinking about those parts of the world as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned those things when you said that you had mixed feelings about, um, the time y'all spent at the orphanage in Mexico, I thought you, uh, I figured you, it might have to do with volunteerism, and then you brought it up. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you made that point, and especially in terms of like uh, what you said about assigning certain forms of travel to different parts of the world, and this idea of like, I guess sometimes we see it as us being there is doing the local people a favor. And so mm-hmm. that extends to. You know, like you said, providing services or doing volunteering that maybe is good hearted, but also mm-hmm. does more for us than it does for the people who live there. Cause it's just all these, uh, well, in your case, like Americans continually passing through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. one, and then on to the next one. Um, so I'm really glad that you, you brought that up. And you said, so it was a weekend. It was two weeks in France. Was it also around the same amount of time in Mexico? It was like two weeks?
0: Yeah, two weeks in both places. Okay.
1: How did you feel about staying in uh, the host families? Did you feel any type of way about that or have any issues
0: with um, with that experience? So in both cases, I was both excited and also super intimidated In the first case, in the the case of the Mexico host family, we were paired up. So me and another classmate from the same trip were paired up, which at first felt kind of comforting because it meant that I wouldn't be alone in the host family experience. But Mm -hmm. in hindsight, it meant that we spent a lot of time talking to each other in English or when we were speaking to each other in Spanish. We were just kind of trading, you know, high school Spanish. We weren't necessarily... Challenging ourselves or furthering our understanding of the language Mm. because we were like sharing a room But you know the family was always super willing to speak to us in in spanish And so whenever we would like have dinner around the table, we were all speaking spanish together But it wasn't this sort of like nonstop immersive spanish experience because my My friend from high school was also in the the room Mm -hmm. um, but they also had a third Student staying with them who had been there for like the past year and she was from the US and her, she was like such a rock star in our mind because at the time we thought she was like perfectly fluent. Um,
2: mm.
0: and she had made all these friends and so we were like just following her into town and she was introducing us to her, you know, local Cuernavaca friends and we were able to speak Spanish with them. So that was like a really cool experience. Nice. And so that was, that was fine. And I didn't have any, um, any weird, interactions oh the other thing was that the the classmate was um the other black student on the trip I don't know if that was intentional actually now that I'm talking about I wonder if that was intentional for them to have assigned us the same host family um oh wow as two black students (laughs) yeah yeah um that's so funny I've literally never thought about that but yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we were the the two black students um on the trip and in, in that host family and the girl that was staying with them was also a woman of color. So that was just an interesting dynamic, which then meant that we didn't feel out of place in, in the host family, right. Because of my classmate, because of the other young Mm -hmm. girl. And obviously because of the family we were, we were staying with, they were like a a mestizo family. So it wasn't, Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything that felt unusual or I didn't feel any sense of discomfort or isolation. And that was also a function of coming from Colorado where there is a large Mexican population. And so I felt like I was just at a friend's house in Colorado and we were able to speak Spanish. Whereas the France homestay was different in every way in the sense that I was by myself with the family where none of the children spoke any English. Mm. And so I was, you know, left to to fend for myself in terms of speaking French And just navigating with them and then going to this high school (laughs) with them. (laughs) Um, Because the other thing about the Mexico homestay was that we were going to a language school. We weren't going to like a high school, Mm. whereas we were purposely paired with host families that had high school age students in the French context in Lyon. And so it meant that we were going to high school (laughs) Hmm. with the students and basically inheriting the status that those kids had at the high school. Hmm. And so if you were staying with a really cool kid, then like you were a really cool kid, whether that was true (laughs) for your own high school experience or not. (laughs) If, if you were staying with the kids that I was staying with, you were not a cool kid. Oh man, because they were not cool kids. And <laughs> my best friend at the time was on a trip, and she was with the cool kids. And I just remember like staring across the lunch room.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. It sounds like a teen movie. <laughs> <It> was, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, That's so, funny.
0: That, and then I, I managed. It was really funny because I managed to like score an invite to like some cool French kid party because of because of my friend Anna. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, <laughs> "Don't invite your host family."
1: Oh no! <laughs> were they that uncool? Oh my
0: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they, had, they had their own thing going um and so <laughs> oh no, i feel bad for
1: laughing
2: <laughs> I know,
0: I, I <laughs> oh my gosh oh oh that's terrible that's terrible but you know we were young and dumb yeah so yeah it was a really cool party so. <laughs> so I'm glad at least you got to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, my face hurts. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I would have assumed French students were more sophisticated than that. But I guess maybe there's some aspect of teenager hood that's similar no matter where you go. I don't know.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God.
1: Okay. So that was your Uh, Mm homestay. Okay. So, you know seemed like that worked out fine. Um, How did your mom, you mentioned your mom and how, you know, y'all had to strategize and just be able to afford to go um, and how she was raising you and your sibling on her own. How does she feel about, you know, her baby going to these foreign countries and, and all that? How does she feel about you traveling internationally at such a young
0: age? She never put any anxiety that she may or may not have felt on me mm. she and I'm the oldest of two so I wasn't her like baby baby mm. and I I was already just a really independent kid and there was something i think about sending me you know across town to private school to this unknown world that was kind of the equivalent of going abroad anyway, like obviously not as Mm. far, but it was something that I was, you know, having to do myself, right. Like a new world with new norms and customs that I was already having to navigate. And so at least to my mind, it felt like in keeping with what I was already doing. And so it also meant that I wasn't afraid. And so I think that must've helped. And just that I was like excited and like, just not going to be swayed. And so There wasn't any part of her that outwardly worried. Although I think about it's funny because since I've spent so much of my life traveling and like started to travel with my mom and like arrange for her to meet me places like I remember um, speaking of France, actually, I in 2013 was going there for some research related to my job, my academic job. And she was meeting me in Paris and I was expecting that she would take a taxi. I was like, here's where you go to get a taxi. And you take that from the airport here and, you know, mm. then once you get here, I'll come right downstairs and I'll help you bring your luggage up. And I remember the day that she was supposed to land, I was so nervous because the time when I thought she was going to arrive at coming and on and I'm like Googling her flight number, like, has there been an airplane crash? Like what, has there been some sort of car crash on the road? I just was like so worried about her because mm that was like her first trip abroad and two things happened. One, it just made me appreciate the angst that probably she did feel, especially if I didn't check in when I said I would. Mm, Um, And just that sense of worry. But the other thing was that when she got there, the reason she took so long was because she decided to take the train, like the subway in. Mm. And she was like, well, and I thought of you because she was like, if Tam can do this and she does it all the time, then I can do it. Oh, and that's what she did.
2: Oh my
1: gosh. That's yeah. so, oh, that's so touching. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. Oh, you inspired your mom. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. It, yeah. Oh, that's, that's really sweet. Okay. So yeah, you, you did that in high school and then, and then, um, was it Argentina? You said you went to in college.
2: Mm-hmm, so,
1: mm-hmm. um, I think I s- saw on there, it was like, a semester, right? You spent a whole
0: semester there doing research? Yeah, so it was a um- program that was sponsored by Butler University and there were sort of two arms of the program one was just your standard like you take classes at the local university
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the other was you do the same thing but on top of that you carry out an individual research project and an independent research project of mm-hmm. while you're there and so you had to I think when I applied I had to give some sense of what I was interested in um, or potential topics that I was interested in or subjects mm-hmm. that I was interested in and then once we got there, we had all these extra classes that we had to take to start to kind of formulate the the research projects. And a lot of that is at the heart of what we do at the Wandering Scholar, because for lots of reasons, even kind of connected to volunteerism, we really want the experience to be less about providing some sort of service to the host community, no matter mm-hmm. where in the world it is, and more about kind of treating that place as a site of learning and site of knowledge and it, you know, I can trace a direct line back to that, that experience I had in Argentina because yeah. I ended up doing, um, independent research on, on racism and xenophobia in Argentina. It's a, it's a really rich <laughs> territory for that sort of exploration. But the reason I ended up going there in particular was that I had wanted to study abroad for a whole year in college. That was like my dream. I ended up in this program, it's called the Mellon, at the time it was called the Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship Program. Mm. It's since been renamed the Mellon Mays University Fellowship Program. But the purpose remains the same, which is to increase the representation of underrepresented groups in higher ed, on higher ed faculty. And so the idea is to help even at the undergraduate level prepare people for graduate study and to prepare for success in, in academia. Mm. And I got in at the end of my sophomore year with the idea of spending my entire junior year abroad. And they're like, well, you can't really participate in this program and be away for the whole year. So we kind of think you should just do a semester. And when I think back on, on it, I'm like, maybe I should have thought it, but mm. instead I was like, okay, well, let me split the difference. Cause my initial vision had been, I was going to go to Spain in the fall And then I was going to go to Mexico in the spring with my college roommate and one of my best friends. Hmm. And then it meant that I was going to get a Europe experience and a return to Mexico, a Latin American experience, and just get like the kind of spectrum of Spanish. Mm -hmm. But because they were like, you can only do one semester. I was like, well, let me pick a place that kind of gives me both of those experiences. Mm -hmm. And Argentina, because of its long history of European immigration and its reputation, or at least the capital's reputation, um, Buenos Aires as the, the Paris of the Americas. I was like, well, it sounds like that's kind of Europe in Latin America. Hmm. So that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'll go for my spring semester abroad. And so that's where I went.
1: Okay. I did not know that Buenos Aires was called the Paris of the Americas. I mm-hmm. learned something new today. Okay. Yeah, that's really, that's really clever thinking uh, in terms of trying to blend the European and the Latin American together, and the experience you were seeking to have at the time. And so you said the semester program you did was
0: through Butler, you said, mm-hmm. were you at Butler um, at that time? No, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, which did not run its own semester-long study abroad program. They had a lot of summer programs, but not in any parts of the world that I was planning to go to. Okay. And Butler University happens to be a leader in study abroad programs. I'm not sure why, but
2: hmm.
0: for so many places in the world that undergraduates tend to go, there's a Butler program that operates it and that you know provides the infrastructure for you to, to go. You still have to kind of work on getting credits at your home institution. But yeah, it just happened that the program that was available in Argentina was run by Butler university.
2: I see.
1: Um, and you mentioned how you did research on um, race and racism. I feel like I know the answer to this question, but for people who are not familiar with Argentina, um, which I guess would also include me, can you speak to why you chose the topic that you chose um, in relation to um Buenos Aires, or yeah, Argentina or Buenos Aires more specifically?
0: Sure. Yeah. And so the reason that Buenos Aires has the reputation for being the Paris of the Americas is kind of the same reason that I ended up studying what I was studying, because it is a country and a capital city that was settled by European immigrants. Um, obviously in the colonial period, but especially in the 19th century, mm-hmm. there was a wave of European immigrants that made their way to Argentina from Italy, from Spain, from England, from Germany. And they kind of remade the city and their image of the places that they came from. Mm. And the city has a lot of, um, like typical Parisian, like houseman architecture. A lot of the buildings Mm -hmm, have similar designs. It's got a lot of grand boulevards. So aesthetically speaking, it also is um, very Parisian. It has lots of parklets and all that, that, you know, we associate with, with Paris. Um, But it also, because of the long history of European immigration, it has um, a lot of, of racism against black and indigenous and, Asian populations um, as a result of Asian populations coming into Argentina, especially in the, the 1970s, there was a wave mm. of immigration from Korea. And so what I was noticing just as a black woman in Argentina was getting stared at a lot, being taunted, mm. being catcalled for lack of a better descriptor um, and just standing out as this person who looked very different than most of the other people mm. Um around the city, not in the country and not in all parts of the city, but especially just, uh, you know, compared to a lot of the other students in my program Mm -hmm. and the parts of town that I was going to school in and where my host mother lived and, and all that. Um, And then, you know, there had been some recent events in Argentina that were also coming to bear. There had been long history of anti-Semitism. There had been an attack on a synagogue shortly prior to my arrival there. Mm. And so all of that just made me wonder, how are people talking about race and racism and xenophobia in schools? Like at the time I wanted to be a teacher, like I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, but I was thinking I might be an elementary school teacher or a high school teacher. And I just wondered how people were talking about these issues, both past and present Mm. in Argentina. And so that was basically my project to figure out, I, I called it like an exploration of the the curricular space of multicultural education. Mm-hmm. How are they talking about these, these isms, right? And it turned out that the way they were talking about them was by pointing to the U.S. They're like, you know, if you want to know about racism, look no further <laughs> than the U.S. <laughs> if you want to talk about xenophobia, look no further than the U.S. Do not look here. It does not exist here.
1: I mean, they're not wrong, but also like you got stuff in your own
0: backyard too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Both things are true. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god,
1: <laughs> that's so that's so sad uh, that we are <laughs> just this huge glaring example. Um, not yeah. you and I, obviously, but as a country. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's our example that we've given to the world, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) And they had really good examples to pull from, right? They had very concrete examples. They talked about Jim Crow, and that is, I think, increasingly and pretty widespread, right? Mm -hmm. A a, a comparison because the U.S. did have institutionalized forms of legal segregation, right? Mm -hmm. And the way a lot of Latin American countries, Argentina included see it is that the absence of that meant that there was an absence of us style racism Mm. meanwhile it's more complicated than that because they they also have institutionalized forms of segregation um, or had and you know continue continue to have and so i was just you know really struck by how those isms belong to other places, not to this place where it was obvious because of what I was experiencing, because of what I was seeing, Mm. because of what I was reading in newspapers, that these were also Argentine problems and yet they were not being talked about as such at any level. So I was interviewing teachers and things like that, just trying to get a sense of, and also like looking at textbooks and just trying to get a sense from, from those materials and from those conversations, like what students were learning and the answer was that they were not learning about their own country mm-hmm. as much as they were learning about the U.S.
1: Yeah when I was saying I felt like I, I knew the answer to the question I was asking because I had heard previously about a lot of Nazis and Germans in general moving to Argentina after World War II. I think it was it heard something about uh, I'm not, now I'm I'm thinking I might have my information wrong, but I remember reading something about how I, there's a question of why there aren't, doesn't seem to be a huge pocket of, of black people in Argentina as much as in other countries. And I read something about like how they were kind of gotten rid of, you know, things like that. I didn't hear, know anything about, as you mentioned, the Korean, um, immigration to Argentina. That's fascinating. I didn't know that, um. Yeah, and, you
0: so, know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, this is me being the historian of Latin America, kind of pushing back on the narrative of yeah. the you know disappearance of Afro-Argentines because they, they have a long history in the country. They were instrumental to the building of the country, hmm. enslaved people of African descent, and their descendants are still alive and well in Argentina. Hmm. They are not always counted as being of African descent. That's like a whole... Other topic, yeah. Um, but there is an Afro-Argentine history and and presence and community. Mm-hmm. And in addition, there's also increasingly an African presence in Argentina. There has, since the 19th century, been a Cape Verdean presence in Argentina. And in recent years, there have been a lot of migrants from West Africa in Argentina.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's increasingly a country that has a diasporic black presence and also a country that is increasingly recognizing its black history because, Mm. you know, that European migration from the 19th century onward then changed the way Argentines talked about themselves and their nation. There is a joke that used to go that Mexicans descended from the Aztecs, Peruvians descended from the Incas and Argentines descended from boats. And so the way they always want or, you know, have long wanted to talk about themselves is as a country of immigrants and by that european immigrants mm. and that meant that they were casting themselves as a white nation despite having an indigenous population
2: yeah.
0: and history and an african descent population and history and an asian population and history so it's a far more diverse country it always has been mm-hmm. and continues to be than its reputation allows for but that's changing too yeah thanks to lots of historians
1: uh, well, I appreciate that correction. Um, I didn't mean to imply there were no black people in Argentina.
0: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I I knew was what you wrong, were saying, yeah, no, no, and I it was more like just the, to correct the yeah. the the record. But I knew I knew what you were getting at. And yeah, I just wanted to just take that opportunity because I do think that that is often, and that was you know something that I you know wished I had a better handle on before I went. And that was my own fault. Like, even though I had studied some Latin American history in college, Mm -hmm. I had taken a Latin American history course before I I took my semester abroad, and I didn't really have that clear sense of appreciation about the relationship between race and national identity. Mm -hmm. And so I was shocked by a lot of things when I got there that I wish I'd been, you know, better prepared for. And, you know, I should also point out that when I went there, it was like 1998, 1999. So it was just a very different you know, time in history, including in Argentina's history. And I went back more recently in 2019 mm-hmm. and it's, it's at a very different place than it was even when I, when I went there, but mm-hmm. all that to say that, yeah, it's all things are complicated, including yeah. that thing.
1: Oh yes. There was something else you said that made me um, think of, cause you were saying how the, like the U S example of racism, especially Jim Crow being this very, this example that stands out that everyone can point to in terms of like racial segregation and whatnot and how Argentina has had its own system of racial, um, discrimination and, um, racial segregation as well, as well. I, I was wondering, cause I remember in college I took, the class wasn't about Brazil, I think it was about citizenship more widely, like national identity and citizen, citizenship. And we spent some time on Brazil. Like the differences in approach, whereas in the U.S., like from slavery onward, it's like the approach was to like black and white should be separate. We should keep them as separate as possible. Obviously, that wasn't always um, true with like uh, slave owners impregnating the people they were enslaving and all that. But it was that idea that black and white, uh, black is inferior to white, and and should be kept as separate as possible whereas in brazil it was more like let's water down the race into extinction like through successive generations let's just keep i guess procreating with light-skinned or white people until Mm -hmm. black people are kind of non-existent or or people don't have it's so much of a mixture that people don't really um can't claim that or wouldn't want to claim that as their The main source of their identity is is blackness. I don't know if that is, if there is a similar approach in Argentina to um, Brazil, or maybe it was Argentina had its own thing going on as well. Can you, can you speak to that at
2: all?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, and as you're, you're even suggesting, it's, it's also complicated, but I would say that similar to Brazil, it had an ideal of whitening. -hmm. Brazil's ideal of whitening was through procreation, whereas Argentina's ideal of whitening was through immigration.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: Brazil had a similar kind of ideal of whitening through immigration, but we also see it happening through these successive generations of of race mixing as well. Whereas the US did not think of that as possible, right? Mm -hmm. The idea was instead that whiteness could only be degraded through procreation mm-hmm. with black people and yeah. that that would forever stay in you for for generations right that that's the idea of the one drop rule
2: mm, yeah
1: all right well thank you for answering that that question because i um obviously you're an expert on this stuff and latin america is not a region i am um very familiar with so i appreciate you shedding light on that a little bit so um you mentioned how part of your process for your research in argentina was um like interviewing teachers and such, did you find that people were open about discussing race? Or d- I'm thinking, like here for example, it's like a touchy subject. If you try to ask people uh, what they think about race, or or just how they whether they notice certain things having to do with race, they mm-hmm. don't want to talk about it, or they might feel that just by asking that you're implying something about what they think and whether Mm -hmm. they're a good person or not, because they might be racist or, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if in Argentina, if people were more open to discussing how race uh, connects to their national identity and what they're teaching students about their national identity.
0: Yeah. It was a little bit of both things you're describing because on one hand they were open to it because it meant they were talking about the U S were they were less open and responsive was thinking about their own country. And so I think a lot of that, and that's true of a lot of places, even, you know, where I live in Canada, there's very much a sense of pride in being unlike the U S and that has to do with lots of things, (laughs) but, and you know, especially in the COVID era, there is (laughs) good reason Mm -hmm. to, to have that sense of pride. But I think that was also what was happening um, on that subject, that there was a sense that, Unlike the U.S., you know, that has these real deep-seated, well-documented problems, we do not. And we will not entertain any suggestion otherwise, right? Mm. And that was, you know, also just perhaps a function of the, the kinds of questions I was asking and the way I was asking them. I, If I were to do that project differently, I would probably, you know, probe a little more. If I was doing it now, for example, and also it's a different country now and so there's Mm. a lot of openness and that's been the result of a lot of efforts on part of Argentine historians and activists and politicians who have really kind of pushed people to reckon with their, their history of slavery, their history of indigenous exclusion, their history of colonial settlement, right? Mm. And just the long legacies of all of those things in ways that would make, I think, them more open. I would get a very different answer and I think there's probably a very different education happening now mm. than, than what's happening then. But that's what I remember about that time that because they were talking about the U.S., they were happy to talk about it. But <laughs> what they were not happy to talk about and not even willing to really entertain was, was the possibility that similar things were happening in their own country, despite mm. all the evidence to the contrary.
2: Right.
1: Do you remember what your fight, what your conclusions were? Um, like when you finished that project and finished that semester in Argentina, do you remember? Yeah. Like what your findings were at that time?
0: Yeah. Beyond that part of it. um, I think there was just a sense of feeling really frustrated because again, I was having these experiences that proved that they had a really complicated and not great relationship with people of African descent. Like I, could not leave the house without getting stared at or without being confused for a Brazilian, because according to the people who confused me for a Brazilian, they said most Brazilians are here or Brazilian women are here to work as prostitutes. And that was a stereotype. Um, But that also meant that there was a very sort of racialized and sexualized way of interacting with me.
2: Mm.
0: And, you know, meanwhile, everywhere you look on television, everyone who is famous or considered aspirational or beautiful was was blonde right Mm. and so it just it made me feel like I didn't know which way it was up because I was seeing all these things with my own eyes and also reading about how people were treating Asian Argentines and also overhearing really pejorative things being said about like visitors from Asia to Argentina not to mention the people who actually lived there Mm and were from there and who had been there for generations. But also, yeah, this insistence that they didn't have a race problem, right? Like now we'd call that gaslighting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe not accurately, but that's, you know, that, that was the, the feeling of just kind of being told that my own perception of reality was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that what I was bringing to it was an American framework. And that was the wrong framework to bring to this.
1: I can like hear, obviously I wasn't there, but I can like hear that, happening like Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. especially the whole American thing like the excuse that you shouldn't be thinking of it through an American lens um Mm -hmm. yeah and you know it's really sad but you're the second person I've I've spoken to within the past like four weeks who's mentioned as a black woman going somewhere and, and potentially being perceived as a prostitute I think for the other person I spoke to she was saying how, like, the sex worker assumption had more to do with, like, being out past a certain time of night. But I'm sure, I'm sure her being black also <laughs> was part of it as well. I, as I, I remember, uh, at least one other person that I've interviewed in previous years said the similar thing. I think she went to Italy and someone mm-hmm. mistook her for something like that as well. And the mm-hmm. person I spoke to a few months ago, she was, or a few weeks ago, she was in, um, Morocco. And was talking about that assumption. So it's just, you know, not to dissuade anyone who's, who's listening and who's a black woman Mm -hmm. and and (laughs) you shouldn't be afraid to go somewhere. Just, uh, it's it's not like everyone's going to think you're a sex worker when you go. And I personally don't think being a a sex worker is a shameful thing, but it's, it's not a positive assumption that people are making (laughs) when they're, you know, staring at you. Like they're not thinking of you in a positive way when they assume that that's what you're there for. Um, mm-hmm. which is really unfortunate. So, yeah. Sorry you dealt with that. <laughs> uh, wow. But um okay, yeah. So that was that was Argentina and then um you had another really big research thing that you did in um Peru, right? For your PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh was yeah. that was that the Fulbright?
2: That,
0: that you was did? the
1: Fulbright. Okay, yeah. Mhm.
0: So that actually, it was kind of connected to my Argentina experience. So before I actually got to Argentina, I spent time in Colorado because their spring semester started in March and went to July rather than January to May or whatever. Mm. And so I had these two months where I couldn't go back to college because I wasn't enrolled in college and I was just kind of waiting for the semester to start and needing to make some money. So I worked at this Peruvian restaurant in Denver Mm. and when they heard that I was going to Argentina, they were like, Why? Why would you go there when you could go to Peru, our country's so beautiful, our history's so much better, our food's so much better and they did have that right. The food was amazing. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't get it out of my head when I went to Argentina and I kind of thought in the way that like kids who go study somewhere in Europe, they'll go to study in Paris and then they'll get to go to London over the weekend or like Switzerland or whatever. I was like, Okay, I mean I'll be able to hit up Peru while I'm in Argentina, like it's fine. <laughs> Even though I'm in one place I'll, you know, get to experience it. But that's not at all how travel within South America works, there's mm. not an international rail system, or at least not one that is accessible to, you know, a college student on a weekend. Mm. And so you're getting around by air. And even that is not accessible to college students. I always thought, like, I don't think I ever, oh, no, I did take a trip. I took a trip to Brazil while i was studying abroad i was like taking portuguese lessons with a friend of mine and then we took a trip to brazil together mm. but that was like the big trip it wasn't like oh and then next week and i'm going to uruguay well we did that we did that by bus but like um or by it, it's called Bukibus. it was like a boat and a bus oh um, <laughs> so, and, but like I, I wasn't like i didn't go to peru i didn't go to you know Ecuador or whatever it just it, it was not an accessible continent in the way that Europe is mm-hmm. um, and so it was always on my mind because I didn't get to go there during my my junior year it was always a place that I knew I wanted to go back to because of my you know experience at the restaurant and the connection I'd had to the people there and the stories they were telling about Afro-Peruvians and it was a Peruvian Cantonese restaurant that I was working in and I was like how did that happen that mm-hmm. you have Chinese food at a peruvian restaurant and it's not like the chinese food you would get at a chinese restaurant it's like its own sort of chinese food like what made that happen and so then i get to grad school and i knew because i did that project on argentina i actually applied you know with that project to grad school to i did a phd at the university of michigan and i was Mm -hmm. basically saying i was interested in studying this project even in more depth in argentina um but then i i really struggled because it was a difficult experience in Argentina. And as much as I thought that it was going to be outweighed by the kind of intellectually interesting things, it was a hard experience when I went back to do some like early pre-dissertation research. And so I was like, Mm. maybe this is not the place for me right now. Maybe Peru is, and let me figure out a project that can take me to Peru. And it was also because I was struggling to find kind of numerical data to support the presence of Afro Argentines. And I I was kind of hinting at that when I was talking about um, your point about disappearance earlier, because, you know, that comes from a real place. Like there has been a kind of national rhetoric in Argentina Mm. around the disappearance of Afro Argentines that, you know, maybe they disappeared in a war and maybe they got really sick. Like there've been all these explanations given for the so-called disappearance. But one of the real reasons is It's more rhetorical that they've disappeared. Mm. It's more that census categories in Latin America, and I know this is like nitty gritty, but it's a thing that matters. And census categories matter even in the U.S. But census categories did not always allow for the category black or because of the history of slavery and the history of racial exclusion. That was not a category that people Found appealing or thought applied if they had any degree of race mixture. Mm. So in the US, if you again have that one drop of black, but you're in the black category. Right. Whereas in Latin America, if you have a drop of white, then maybe you're mulatto, right? Maybe you're a cuateron. Like there were all these other categories that people could put themselves in mm-hmm. that meant that very few people considered themselves black. Yeah. Even if they looked like me, they looked like you of obvious African descent they would not necessarily be counted on the census as being black. Right. Right. And so all that to say that I went to Argentina in grad school looking to start at least from a baseline understanding of the demographics. Like there are, you know, this many Afro Argentines. And based on that, I can start to, you know, ask some other questions and Mm -hmm. do some other exploration. And I was struggling with that. And so I remember kind of sharing with my dissertation advisor that I was struggling with that. And she's like, well, you could also go back to a point in time when the numerical presence of people of African descent was undeniable. That you couldn't, you know, play fast and loose with terminology or self-identification because during the history of slavery, that's what she was getting at. Hmm. It mattered to get it right. And there were an obvious and significant number of people of African descent, um, who were enslaved. Many of them were free, but most of them were enslaved. And so that's what I ended up kind of turning to the history of slavery, where I could start from a baseline certainty: this is how many people we're talking about, and then you can like start asking some other questions versus kind of debating the very existence of right. these these people and the populations. So yeah, I ended up studying slavery in Peru, and then. I became interested within that in the study of clothing during the period of slavery in mm-hmm. Peru. And so that was what my Fulbright research was. And that became the basis for my book, Exquisite Slaves, which is about race, clothing and status in colonial Lima. Mm.
2: And
0: so that's what I, that's what I did when I was there in grad school. Wow.
1: What drew you to honing in on clothing?
0: Um, I ended up, and this is always an argument for just like, getting lost in a library. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I always talk to students about this, especially if they're just trying to figure out what they're interested in or what kinds of topics are, are viable or compelling. And I remember I was just kind of vaguely interested in the topic of slavery in Peru. And I was taking a class, an English class, actually, not a history class in grad school, where the professor took us basically on a field trip across campus to the Clements library, which is a rare book library at the mm. university of Michigan. And I was using those search terms and saw a travel account that was written by a British woman who was taking a trip around the world in the 1800s. She got to Peru in 1858, mm. which was a couple of years after the abolition of slavery. And she was describing brown black and brown women as she described them wearing silken clothing that was hanging half off. And then she ended up describing them as looking like pigs with gold necklaces. And just oh. in those words, I came up with a bunch of questions like, okay, well, who are these women? How'd they get the clothing that they were wearing? Was it ragged? She described it as ragged. Mm. Was it to them? Um, was it really? And just because she thought they looked like pig with pigs with gold necklaces doesn't mean they thought that's how they looked themselves. They right. might've been very proud of um, themselves and, very comfortable and confident in themselves. And so how can I learn more about these women and see them beyond the perspective of this British woman who is kind of determined to only see them a certain way. Uh And so, yeah, it was that one text that just kind of got my wheels turning and pointed me down to Peru and to archives where I could try to answer some of those questions. And that's what I ended up doing.
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny because when you started mentioning the, the British woman who's traveled to Peru in my head I was thinking I guess still in a modern context I was like oh yeah good for her being able to travel right. around at that time by herself mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. just out here traveling that's good yeah, right, and then exactly. you but know, <laughs> then she was mad racist so I was like, oh never mind. <laughs> Never
0: mind. <laughs> <Right>. Never mind.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's such a wretched thing to say. Pigs in mm-hmm. gold necklaces. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yep. Oh my yep. gosh, that is wretched. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sorry, were you about to say something?
0: <laughs> no, just I. I to this day, you know, I feel the same way. It just it, and it hurt. It it hurt me for them because I was also imagining these women having a sense of pride in how they were dressed and carrying themselves Mm -hmm. and that she couldn't see it and, like, wouldn't see it because she could only see their skin color, right? And, like, wouldn't see their humanity and wouldn't make room for their own sense of self. And so it also... And it, you know, came at a time in my life too, where I remember like, and it's a, it's a bad comparison, but it's still one that meant something to me. Cause like, Mm. you know, I mentioned that I'd worked at that Peruvian restaurant. I worked as a bartender and that became like my kind of go-to job when I was in, in grad school. And I remember that for so many of those jobs, especially when I worked for catering companies was to wear just like, you know, black pants and like comfortable, you know, clunky shoes and like a white button up shirt. And I always remember feeling really like androgynous and just like not like myself and just, you know, finding myself maybe putting makeup on more or lipstick just to like recover some sense of like femininity like that. That mattered to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just remember thinking that the women that she was describing probably had their own sense of femininity that they wanted to recover or express that she wasn't seeing and just had no, you know, regard for. And so that was also something that just kind of spoke to me. It was like out of this sense of affinity and that's not to, you know, diminish the reality that those women lived in and the harsh reality that they Mm -hmm. lived in or compare mine, but just that there was a capacity (laughs) for empathy that I had that obviously she didn't have. And that meant, that meant something to me. That meant that I felt like this was something that I was like well positioned Mm -hmm. to, to do in terms of the research for, for this kind of project.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what did you find in terms of how these um, black women at the time were dressing, like how they felt about the clothes they were wearing and how they were adorning themselves? Um, you know, I'm sure obviously they weren't thinking about it the same as that racist white lady. Like I'm right. sure <laughs> <laughs> the, how they yeah. perceived how they were dressing themselves was mm-hmm. different. So, I mean, can you speak to what you found in regard to that?
0: Yeah. I mean, the short answer is that we still don't know how they felt because oh, okay. they didn't have access to writing like they weren't allowed to learn how to read or write for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they couldn't write travel accounts like this British woman had written. Right. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't write memoirs or diaries. And so it's it's still impossible to know. But what I tried to get at um, through other sources was what kinds of clothing mattered to them, especially as enslaved people who didn't get to make choices about what they wore. Um, and I kind of stumbled into a really unusual source space for the project where I looked at criminal records that involved enslaved people being accused of stealing clothing. Oh. And I just became really interested in, you know, what they were accused of stealing, why they were accused of stealing it, what they did with it, um, or what they were alleged to have done with it. So like... I found lots of different cases, but one for example involved an enslaved man who stole women's clothing that he then gave to his sister and to his nieces mm. so they could wear their clothes their new clothes like silks and mm. laces and things like that to a bullfight where they could go somewhere in public and dress up and yeah and show be out. comfortable and <laughs> yeah and show out exactly and that, that mattered to him right as a, a brother and an uncle to allow for for them to do that. And that mattered to, to them to have someone who was, was looking out for them. And I think those are things that even for, for modern folks who, you know, have experienced those things themselves, like just being gifted clothing from someone who loves them, mm-hmm. um, that we can imagine how that feels. Right. So even yeah. if we don't know, we can at least try to with within reason, imagine yeah how that felt.
1: Yeah. Definitely. I like that you mentioned uh, this idea of trying to assert some sort of agency in a time where they didn't get a lot of say over what they wore. I don't know if this is unrelated or not, but when you were talking about this uh, idea of exploring what enslaved women were wearing at that time, it reminded me of uh, the, what were they called? The laws in like Louisiana where they wanted women mm-hmm. to cover their hair. Was it?
0: Mm -hmm. Tinio, the tinio laws. Yeah, well, Um, sumptuary laws, but they were enforcing the the wearing of the the tinio.
1: Yeah, and how that, even though that was meant to like to cover up or dial down whatever perceived beauty these Mm -hmm. black women might have, it still Mm kind of became Mm -hmm. its own fashion statement with the Mm -hmm. types of (laughs) material they were using to cover their hair and how they were wearing it. Mm -hmm. You know. So mm-hmm. that came to mind when I was listening to you talk about that in Peru it reminded me of you know what they had going on in Louisiana I guess we we still managed to find a way to show out somehow and express yeah. ourselves somehow Yeah
0: <laughs> No and I use that same example um that same sumptuary law um, in the book just like as a point of comparison. There were sumptuary laws in in Peru and Spanish America as well. Mm. And that was um I think that was during it's been it's been a while so I might be misremembering but I think that was when Louisiana was under Spanish rule so it's part uh, of the same history.
1: Yeah, okay. So it is related. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> they, were,
0: they were exactly on point. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. I feel smart for making that connection. (laughs) Um, Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's what, that was your dissertation. And so you were in Peru for a whole year doing that, right? Yeah,
0: pretty much. Okay.
1: So I remember reading in your, in your, um, one of your bios about how when you were there and you met your colleagues and saw that there wasn't a whole lot of, diversity and how they, the explanation had to do something with your, um, not your, but, uh, mm-hmm. the lack of, I guess they, they, they couldn't find <laughs> POC applicants or not mm-hmm. a lot of people of color were applying. And then that was the explanation for why the, it turned out the way it did in terms of the, mm-hmm. Uh, Fulbright people that were there so I, I'm wondering what the time frame was from when you were in Peru to when you ended up uh, starting The Wandering Scholar with, with Shannon
0: good question and yeah like that um, so I was in Peru in 2004 and the moment you're describing was a dinner that was held on behalf of all the Fulbright scholars from around the Andes hmm. broadly defined so there were folks from Colombia, from Ecuador, from Bolivia, and Peru, all in the same room, along with representatives from um, the State Department in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I look around the room and realize that I'm the only Black person in the room. And I happen to be seated at this dinner next to one of the representatives from the State Department, which administers the the Fulbright program. And so I remember asking Um, just, you know, kind of a leading question about what the kind of breakdown was along demographics. And if it was similar to what we were seeing in the room that we were seated in, Mm -hmm. and you could tell that it was a topic that had been discussed and that the conclusion they came to was that they just struggled to get quality applications from students of color, which was a really offensive Mm -hmm. way of diagnosing the issue because you know we're not talking about science and math where and i'm sure even scientists and mathematicians are like well there's no single right answer in every case in our field either but they were Mm -hmm. treating it as though there were objective descriptions of quality projects and objective metrics for making those determinations Mm -hmm. when all of that is subjective right but at the same time like one of the things it was true was that you know when it came to determining whether someone could carry out the project they were proposing one of the things that mattered was one language skills and two kind of familiarity with cross-cultural interaction in the form of having you know navigated an international setting before Mm -hmm. and I had those for all the reasons that we've been talking about tonight Mm -hmm. that you know I had taken all these trips one led to the other led to the other I had studied foreign languages, been in an immersive environments, So in that sense, I was a, a shoe in for this fellowship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I understood that, you know, that was a result of these experiences and opportunities and privileges that I had. So that was the idea for the wandering scholar. And to answer your question about the timing, this was in 2004, we finally founded the wandering scholar in 2009. Um, and then we, you know, sent our first students on trips like the following summer mm-hmm. um, or the summer thereafter. But it was, you know, yeah. Uh, a moment that has stuck with me and, you know, the Argentina experience, that experience of like doing immersive research and the Fulbright experience of doing immersive research are, you know, both part of the template for what we do at the Wandering Scholar. We aren't just giving scholarships for people to travel. We're also helping them to design and, and implement and carry out and complete these, these, we call them documentation projects, but they're basically research projects. Like we know, Mm. That you know, not everybody is gonna gonna be drawn to the idea of like a, a research project or some like thesis project. In the way that <laughs> I was at that age, but mm-hmm. um, and that Shannon was at that age, but the idea is similar to like develop a sense of expertise, like that you you're learning something from the host country and you're also developing a skill set of your own that's gonna make you legible, basically for other opportunities. And that has been the case with our wandering scholars that they've gone on after these programs. They've gone everywhere. They've gone to Stanford. They've gone to Yale. They've gone to Tufts. They've gone um, to Hong Kong. They've gone to India. They've gone to Israel. Mm -hmm. They've studied Arabic. They've, you know, majored in, in economics. And what they all say is that it was that experience that, both gave them confidence, but also, again, like, made them legible because that's what it did for me. Like, these things yeah. that I could put on my they – they were resume builders, right? And they were things that helped to make the case for these people in D.C. to say, like, oh, I guess this person does have what we think is necessary to carry these things out, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it was one of those – both things were true that they assumed that there was this universal sense of an objectively good or interesting project despite the fact that that's often rooted in, you know, racist or xenophobic or just, you know, Eurocentric ideas. Um, but at the same time, there was an opportunity gap. And that was what we were trying to do, which is close the opportunity gap. And that's yeah. what we continue to try to do.
1: Yeah, y'all are definitely doing it. And I'm, I'm sure that it is um, having a, an impact that the students appreciate and that um, doesn't go unnoticed. Oh, yes. So you mentioned how like the That loaded word of quality applications and the criteria Mm -hmm. that was being used to uh, select people for the Fulbright at the time. So uh, I guess I'm wondering, since you're kind of in the driver's seat and you Mm. get to to decide or, you know, you're trying to find students to participate Mm -hmm. in these things, you know, what kind of criteria do you and Shannon have and what kinds of things do y'all look for when, trying to um, get students involved with the Wandering Scholar?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. (laughs) Um, You know, we really try to get a holistic view of the student. We have them, you know, describe themselves. We have them, you know, give us a sense of the projects they're interested in. And often it'll be that we're really interested in the medium that they're, kind of interested in telling their story. And like, I want to do a photo essay, I want to do a series of poems. Mm -hmm. And so likewise, for us, this is all subjective, right? There's no, there's no like scientific way of approaching this. But what we try to do is take a holistic view of the student and just their passion. Mm -hmm. Because you can teach a lot of people a lot of things if they if they want to learn them, right. And that's usually what makes the difference in, you know, the quality of someone's experience. And, you know, it's it's high school and they're short term trips, they're usually two to four weeks. And, you know, not all of our tour operators require students have language skills. We see that as a bonus if they have them, mm. but it's not gonna, you know, mean the difference between an acceptance or a rejection if they don't have them. And so it really varies from student to student. We also have an interview process where we just try to get a sense of the students' experiences. But honestly, what we do is make sure that people who, as much as possible, we try to make sure that people who have never had these opportunities get them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, increasingly a lot of our students are first generation American and so they are children of immigrants and We're trying to send them to places that they're not already culturally familiar with so that it's a new experience for them and a new opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. We most of all want students who have no connection to other parts of the world so that we can be the source of that experience. So I guess the difference between, you know, what happens with the Fulbright is that they want to see evidence of having had the experiences that we're going to provide that like we're the first stop for the students. So it doesn't matter to us if they have ever left the country and in fact that would work against them because we want this to be their like first meaningful experience abroad Mm. um it matters if they you know have an interest in foreign languages because that's something that we know is the key to meaningful global citizenship and that even if they haven't been taking the classes or been able to take the classes that they'd be interested in developing skills in a foreign language um so more than anything we want to give them the opportunity that's going to make everything happen and so we don't rely on like some impressive CV that shows that they've already done these really cool summer programs. And there were just going to be an additional feather in their cap. And instead this is going to make the difference between them working at, you know, McDonald's for the summer or having an experience that is going to help set them on a different sort of path. And that's not to diminish the students who work at McDonald's. And in fact, that's always like, we've had students who say, you know, like until the trip I'm going to be working at McDonald's Mm. or uh, during the school year, I work at McDonald's because that shows a level of resilience, too. Yeah. And so that's also something we think about, like their resilience, their sense of responsibility, their drive, and all those things that all just need an opportunity to kickstart everything else that they're capable of doing into motion. Get
1: students that, that first experience that can change everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I realize I've been talking to you for a long time um, but I, I still have a few more questions if that's okay sure. yeah absolutely <laughs> um, regarding the Wandering Scholar I'm wondering uh, hmm so first of all what made y'all want to branch out into the uh, podcast element with why we wander why we wander you know why was that important to y'all as part of what you uh, were already doing and then also, given that you have a, a decade of experience at this point, what would you advise for someone who maybe wants to is interested in starting a nonprofit that's similar to what what y'all have done?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so for the the question about why we wander, um, I think some of it is explained by the fact that you know you and I have been talking for like an hour and forty five yeah. minutes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I try to be mindful. <laughs> I try to be
0: mindful of people's time. So no, no, but I'm saying that I'm like, no, that I'm happy to talk to you for this long. And that yeah. you know, when you were on our episode, we talked for a really long time, right? That like, what we have in common is uh, a love for talking about travel. Yeah, and so that was that was really the idea behind it. And that you know, we also we serve young people, like high school age students, but we have a community that's. Bigger than that, because one aspect of our program is that we pair our students with what we call travel mentors, mm-hmm. and those are adults who have had experiences like you've had um, and like I've had, where we had those early formative experiences that changed everything for us, and that we recognize just how special a time they're about to embark on, mm-hmm. and recognize also that sometimes you need help figuring out how to make the most of this experience once you're back home, mm-hmm. and even just before you set out for it, like how to prepare for living with a host family, how to prepare for, you know, being the only person like you in your group. So we try to pair students with people who can like speak to or connect to their own kind of personal family experiences and background experiences, um, which is to say that we have a lot of supporters of our organization who are, you know, out of college, out of grad school, working in professions yeah. that they are part of because of their early international experiences and like also like to talk about travel. So we were also just wanting to connect to that community Mm -hmm. by talking about travel. And also just, there wasn't when we first started that much in that, that space beyond like people like Rick Steves um, or, you know, bigger properties that were talking about travel, like travel and leisure. I think they came a little after us. Um, And so, yeah, we just thought, you know, it would be a way for us to, Talk to people who have been really helpful to our organization. Our very first episode, we spoke to the founders of Walking Tree Travel, which is one of our tour operators when we send students abroad. Um, Another episode, we talked to someone who had served as a travel mentor for us. So it was really about kind of connecting with our community and has since turned into just talking about all the different ways that our lives as individuals and as travelers are shaped by travel. And especially now in this sort of so-called post COVID moment where people are returning (laughs) to travel, we're, you know, we're also thinking a lot about what has changed and what needs to change, because I think there's a sentiment of, and I catch myself feeling this often of just kind of returning to the old ways, Mm. but there were already signs that the old ways were not serving us.
2: Yeah. And so,
0: just wanting to kind of be mindful about that. We had a series of um, workshops that we conducted over the the winter last year called Intentional Travel, where we were thinking about these sorts of things and hoping that like-minded people would want to join us in conversations about intentional travel and the kinds of questions that we all need to be asking ourselves and our destinations that will allow for sustainable and meaningful travel experiences. So yeah, it's just this idea of Extending the the reach of our organization, talking to people that have helped make our work possible mm-hmm. and hopefully reaching a broader audience that will then also learn about the work that we do at the Wandering Scholar and, you know, be willing to make a donation to support the, the work that we do for our students. And and we just see those two worlds, the world of the organization and the world of the podcast as, you know, being their own thing, but also being mutually beneficial Uh to one another. Um, And then as for, you know, starting a nonprofit, I do think that I sometimes feel like there are too many nonprofits in the world (laughs) and that there are more nonprofits (laughs) for, per cause (laughs) than we probably need to have. Mm. And that we're probably better served by collaboration
2: Mm.
0: with existing organizations. Like if people are interested in certain causes, then there's probably already an organization that exists. And if not, because the work is so hard and often not necessarily fiscally (laughs) rewarding, Hmm. then there needs to be a really good reason to be starting something new um, on your own. And that needs to be the reason you kind of live and breathe and, and get up in the morning because it is, it is so challenging. Um, And that, you know, two heads are better than one, right? Like Mm -hmm. Shannon and I in a different world might've started this organization, um, on our own, like each of us in our own way, but like, we work so much better having collaborated with one another and also collaborating with our tour operators in different ways. And I could see a future where we collaborate with other nonprofits, um, in other ways that might mean that we merge in some way with another organization. I mean, never say never, but it's Mm -hmm. also just sort of recognizing that what matters the most is, is the cause, not necessarily like having our own thing, but just having an ability to do the work that drives our mission. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I see that. It's a very good point you made about, um, uh, (laughs) maybe collaborating instead of creating something new on your own. Um, I'm reminded of an interview I, I did with someone a couple of years ago. She, she was in public health, but she had a similar um, opinion on nonprofits. Like mm-hmm. maybe it'd be better to like, I can't remember how she phrased it, but like, instead of spreading resources so thin, you know, collaborate more between organizations and, and, and all that. Um, mm-hmm. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: that it's not like so much competition, not that, yeah. You're necessarily competing, intentionally competing against each other, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, might be better to consolidate than continuing to create new things that do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I was, I'm just remembering that conversation. She was very, um, very strongly opinionated about, about that aspect. Yeah. So, um, I agree with her. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about your, your own, um, you know, experiences. We talked about Mexico and France and we talked about Argentina and Peru. Do you have any advice for someone who wants to go to those places and maybe do a similar thing um, in terms of like studying abroad or research in those countries? Could be, well, I mean, you had scholarships and fellowships at play, but, you know, it could be in terms of how to afford doing that or even just like other general takeaways you might have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think that the financial part of it is is real. Um, and that there are some places that just are not going to to be feasible for people, right? And so I guess it's a matter of really drilling down on what it is about that place that interests you. And if it's just for the sake of it, then, you know, that matters too. And that's, that's important not to discourage people because Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, that's often reason enough, but just, you know, thinking about these issues related to affordability, but also sustainability. Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, there are certain places that just might not be our journeys to experience. Like I feel that way about Dubai for different reasons um, or places like Venice for sustainability reasons that that's just not where my journey is going to take me. And so Instead, maybe it's about like what and this is something we, you know, talked about in our intentional travel workshops. Mm-hmm. Just having a real honest conversation with yourself about what it is about these places that appeal to you and what you hope to get out of the experience of going in a, a meaningful sense. I mm-hmm. think that's something that we should all do, regardless of whether we're going to Mexico or France or Las Vegas, you know, or California that just having a more intentional mindset about travel is only going to serve us and our experiences and the people that we travel with. Well, mm-hmm. um, that being said, I'm also, you know, someone who runs a travel thing nonprofit. And so the, the more, especially because we serve, you know, students of color, first gen students, low income students, that the more diverse people see the world and describe the world and engage the world, the better. hmm. And so at the same time that there's a need for intentionality, I think that there's also a really strong need for, especially in, in the era that we're living in, diverse people from the U.S. kind of representing the U.S. on the world stage and engaging the fellow members of the global community um, in ways that will not just serve the U.S. and maybe not even serve the U.S., but serve the interests of, of humanity in mm-hmm. ways that that matter. Like I, I think that diversity and travel is one of my reasons for being right. Just playing the small part that I can yeah. and ensuring that and ensuring that global citizenship is something that is driven in large part by people who, you know, who kind of represent the largest populations in the world, right? We live in a really yeah. diverse <laughs> world and yeah. it's not always reflected And, you know, who gets to see the world and who gets to move around the world. And Mm -hmm. I think those things, those things really matter. Um, and I know that there are often logistical hurdles that can get in the way of that, but fortunately there are nonprofit organizations like ours and, and so many others that can help to offset the cost of these things, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, can, can do their, their small part. So I know sometimes it's easier said than done, but I do, I do think that, where there are possibilities to make it happen, those are those are worth those are worth pursuing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree, and I I, <laughs> uh, I like what you said about um, in addition to intentionality, like the the idea that there needs to be lots of diverse people getting these opportunities to um, then describe like the world as they mm-hmm. as they see it, because mm-hmm. if. <laughs> If, if that lady in the 1800s was Mm -hmm. the British lady was -hmm. talking about pigs and gold necklaces, if that Mm -hmm. was the only narrative out there and that got taken as, as, as fact as, or as the only, the only perspective to have or worth having, then (laughs) if that had taken precedence over any other perspective there might be about Black women at that time, you know, that, that would have really cast a, a shadow over what people from the outside looking in would think about what the world is like. Whereas if you have more people getting to say and describing the world, like you said, then Mm -hmm. it adds, it's um, a more vast array of perspectives and allows for more nuanced (laughs) perspectives Mm -hmm. to be out there.
0: Um, Yeah. And I would say more accurate, right? Because sometimes when you have, the same people describing the world who kind of come from the same sorts of places and like are inclined to you know characterize things in the same way, then so too are they going to describe different parts of the world in in the same way. So, mm-hmm. and it means that I mean, the, those descriptions and those experiences are are incomplete and not representative and. Yeah, not and not always honest or accurate either. So mm-hmm. I think all of that is necessary, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, there's a necessary correction that needs to happen, and just a necessary type of inclusion that isn't just for the sake of those people, but mm-hmm. for how we all understand the world.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, you've you've traveled uh, a lot in your life, and you know, current circumstances might influence your answer to this question. But you know, uh, are there any places that you're looking forward to going to in the future? Any Um, anywhere that you have your heart set on that you'd like to go to or maybe even
0: revisit in the future? Oh, that's a good one. Um, You know, there are places that I have never gone to. um, There's so many parts of the world that I've never gone to. Mm. But um, one place I keep thinking about lately is Australia. And for no reason, or even (laughs) Singapore, these these are places where I'm like, that's travel, man. Like just (laughs) like that, (laughs) because it takes time, right? If you're going to spend so much time getting there, you're going to spend enough time to kind of make it count. And it's far enough away that it is, you know, obviously just different customs, Mm -hmm. the the water flows in different directions, (laughs) you know, all of these things are, are just so new and fresh. And I think that I also can't picture doing that for a really long time in part because I also have a dog and just the idea of like leaving him for like two weeks, it just sounds insane to me. And so it would take some doing for that to, to be on the table. Mm-hmm. So it's both like a, a COVID world and just like a, a life stage world. Um, and I know in the meantime, you know, and I already have some, some trips on the horizon I have a, a work trip planned for, for France, for example, that is happening in December. Oh, nice. And I'm really grateful for that. I'm nervous about it, but I'm also really grateful for it. Um, but, yeah, while we're, while we're fantasizing, like, <laughs> I may as well be talking about the moon when I talk about those places.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. But, I mean, you know, it's good to keep them in mind, um, even though, like you said, they are far and there's this... Consideration of how how long you're comfortable with being away. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, okay, nice. And and I hope your upcoming trip to France goes well and that you have safe travels and everything. That's exciting.
0: Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. <clears throat> Last two questions since we're uh, knocking on two hours now. I promise I wasn't <laughs> expecting this conversation to be this long. <laughs> Although I have greatly enjoyed it. Uh, it's been uh so much fun talking to you. Um, Same here. But I only have two more questions. One of them is, um, you know, since this is the first episode that I'll be putting out in 2022, I'm just wondering if you have anything you're looking forward to or anything specific you're hoping for in the new year?
0: I am so excited to send our scholars back out into the world because honestly, like for as much as I have you know, had my moments of bemoaning, not being able to travel and, you know, experience that part of life and, and my identity. Like I know that even if I never traveled again for the rest of my life, like I've had so many incredible formative experiences and that I'd ultimately be okay. Like it would be hard, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't change me. But because again, because I know how formative and Altering those experiences are the fact that like we've had two summers where we haven't been able to provide those experiences to people Mm. and that they might have lost their chance and therefore missed the window to rethink who they are and what they can become. If I think too much about it, like that breaks my heart. And so just the idea of being able to provide Mm. that possibility and open that door for another another student and the fact that we'll get back to that in the summer that's the thing I'm most looking forward to about 2022 like mm. hands down
1: yeah yeah that is a big thing to look forward to especially like you said since you've been um I mean not on pause y'all have both been really active um this whole time but you know not being able to take students on on trips like you were used to doing uh, before the pandemic started um
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure that'll be really exciting to get back into that and I hope that goes well do y'all... Oh, sorry. I was supposed to only have one other question. But um, <laughs> you, you might have mentioned this already, but do y'all mostly send students to Latin American countries or is it like all over?
0: It is basically wherever our... Um, our tour operators, we have two travel partners, um, Walking Tree Travel and Where There Be Dragons. Mm-hmm. And wherever they go, we try to send our students okay. um, or at least to as many of those destinations as possible. So I guess the last summer that we sent scholars away, we sent one to Peru and we sent one to Senegal. And, oh. you know, that was the second student we had sent to Senegal. We've sent students to Costa Rica. It happens that a lot of student travel programs are in Latin America and like mm-hmm. especially in Mexico and Costa Rica for lots of reasons but accessibility being one of them. But um you know, we're we're really open. We had a student who did um a podcast episode for us. We kind of produced an episode where she talked about her relationship as a Haitian American to Haiti mm. and you know, there's lots of challenges in terms of travel to Haiti period right now and certainly for student travel to Haiti, but it would be a real dream for us to be able to send her to Haiti if possible. Yeah. Um and there are other there are other parts of parts of the world that we hope to send students on. Um my partner Shannon and I talk often about trying to send students to Argentina since that's a place that, you know, we both have in common and that obviously has shaped me, mm-hmm. um, just based on what I've been talking about today. So, you know, there is a vision of, you know, running our own trips because right now we send them on existing trips. Mm-hmm. But yeah, wherever in the world they can go, we, we try to send them. Um, oh, we sent students to Italy one year. So mm-hmm. we're, we're open and, you make sure that they get something incredible out of it and produce something really cool based on those experiences no matter where they go mm.
1: oh okay well good I'm I'm excited for you um, for y'all in terms of getting scholars back out there again um, in the upcoming summer obviously I'm supportive of, of what y'all do uh, especially with <laughs> why we wander you know I'm, I'm familiar with all the hard work that y'all put in and so um, yeah I hope that. That continues to be um, not only successful, but rewarding to you both personally. And um, yeah, I hope y'all keep up all the amazing work you're doing. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. So my very last question is where can people reach you or keep up with you online if you would like them to do so?
0: Well, we... um... (laughs) have been kind of on a bit of a hiatus um, on our social media channels, mm. but we are getting ready to revive for, you know, our winter going into summer programming. And we are on um, Instagram at the wandering scholar.com. We're on Twitter at wander scholar and we can be reached over email old school at info at the scholar.com. Mm. And then we're we also have the podcast, why we wonder. And that's wherever, you can get your podcast.
1: Okay, perfect. Seems like really um, easy ways to find y'all to get locked in. In the meantime, get locked. Well, I don't know. Uh, by the time this comes out, maybe y'all will be back running full steam again. I don't know. But, uh, that's where social media actually. goes. <laughs> yeah, that's a
2: problem.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. Yeah, wandering scholar. Yeah, that sounds really good. So. I have had a really nice time talking to talking to you today. I actually just uh, wrapped up Young Gifted and Abroad for the year earlier this week, so this interview is kind of like a victory lap for me. So <laughs> <It's on. laughs> that's awesome. Glad I got to chat with you and in, in preparation for the new year. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I didn't
0: think it would go this long. <laughs> it felt like no time at all. It was super fun. <laughs>
1: Likewise, likewise. This has been really fun for me. Thank you for sharing um, so much of your wonderful insight as a a traveler, but also like the the things that you um, learned and observed through your your research, you know, as a historian and and all that. Uh, I have learned so much today and (laughs) I, um, yeah, I really, I really appreciate this. I feel like I'm after this, I'm, like, really done for the year. So I'm glad to nice. be ending it out on such a high note um, with with your involvement.
0: So thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. And I'm relieved <laughs> that you are able to end on a high note instead yeah. of a, a womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of
1: course not. Not with you involved. There's no way. No way it's going to be a womp womp with you involved. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to um <laughs> have this out in January. It'll depend on how I'm feeling once the new year starts. <laughs> so yeah, <who> knows?
0: understandable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, <laughs> might need a little more time to get back into the swing of things. Who knows? Understood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, and you deserve a vacation. Yeah, a little bit of downtime.
1: Yes, yes, I do. Thank you for saying that. Um, and you as well. I'm sure you're busy with tons of things. So I hope you have, you know, are able to carve out some, some restful and, uh, uh, recreational experiences for yourself as the year winds down <clears throat> um but yeah thank you so much for your time I will not hold you any longer because <laughs> it's already been a long time but I hope you have a great rest of your night and um you know a great holiday season and a happy new year as well and I look forward to being in touch between now and then okay sounds good all (laughs) right good talking to you likewise thank you bye tamra bye Bye. all right y'all there it is thanks to tamra for being such a wonderful guest and i hope you like how this all turned out for the rest of you listening don't forget to follow this podcast at young gifted and abroad on instagram and facebook and at yg abroad on twitter And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on (laughs) younggiftedandabroad.com. I had to think about it. It's been a while since I've had to say this. Um, But yes, younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to Young Gifted and Abroad wherever podcasts are. And you are welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you leave ratings and reviews. (laughs) And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com So for the next episode in two weeks, well, that conversation has not been recorded yet, but provided that all goes well, (laughs) the guest... Um, for that episode in two weeks will be someone who coincidentally is currently doing a full ride in south korea so you can look forward to hearing all about that in two weeks but until then thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time